Well, good morning, and uh, as Dave was saying earlier, it is just a gorgeous day today. I'm so glad it's not thundering like it was like at 2.30 in the morning uh, or 100 degrees outside. It's just a beautiful day. So we're thankful that many can be outside today and many of you at home. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 10. Lord willing, we're actually going to complete this chapter this week. Uh, That's my intention. Now, several years ago, uh, my wife, Cindy, and my administrative assistant, Irene Gans, got involved in uh, an exercise sort of program, and they were going to go and run the race to Roby Creek, which, if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's a half marathon here in Boise. It's actually considered to be one of the most grueling half mar- marathons in the Pacific Northwest. And somehow, uh, they managed to rope uh, me and Dean, Irene's husband, into this whole deal. And so we, we started training with them, which meant that, you know, beginning in, like, I think it was February or so, February, March, early March, we started going up to this mountain, you know, where they do Roby Creek and training on the mountain, which meant, you know, tr- running up it and, you know, there's snow on the ground. It was just... I, you know, many times it was great doing it, and I was, I was thinking, why am I doing this? You know, what, what possessed me uh, other than my wife asking me to do it? And I, I, I came down to that's probably the only reason. But as I was doing it, I was really enjoying the time with the Lord, you know, just having time uh, up in the mountains. It was beautiful. And, uh, but the thing is, is that as you approach the summit, of course, in this in this. Uh, race, you, you have to go over the, uh, the top of a mountain and then down the other side all the way to Roby Creek. And, uh, and so as you get to the, the very summit, the last half mile is extremely steep. And I decided I am, I'm not going to try to run this, okay? I, I'm going to give my muscles a bit of a reprieve and, and just power walk that last half hour. But the funny thing is, is that most of the injuries on the race occur on the backside, right after you go over the summit and you start going downhill because you're going downhill so at such a steep uh, incline that people aren't ready for it and they, you know, they fall apart and they fall and that's usually where the injuries happen. So, so anyway, the race day comes. I make it up to the top. I get over the top. I'm less like less like being really careful and I didn't fall. And I made it to the end. In fact, we all made it to the end. But the last part, I got to tell you, it, I was like out of energy. I mean, I was like, God, just get me through this. Help me cross the finish line. And, and I did. And it felt great to be able to actually complete it. And I said, why, didn't you, why are you talking about all this? Well, because of this one thing. And that is the Bible likens our Christian life to a race. We are running a race. And we are to run in such a way as to win the prize. But in this race, there are many obstacles. And Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples, his followers, understood exactly what they were getting themselves into. This was not going to be easy. This was not a sprint. It wasn't like a 50-yard dash. This was a marathon. And our life in Christ is a marathon. There are There's adversity that happens, there's challenges, there's obstacles. They don't last forever, but the thing is, is that what we want to aim for is not only to run well, but to finish well. 
And the problem is that many people don't finish well. They start out well. They start out, you know, like maybe in the beginning when they first came to know Christ, you know, they were on fire for the Lord. They were in Bible studies. They were in the Word themselves. They were praying. They were taking advantage of every opportunity to share their faith with others. But, you know, as time went on, that changed and they began to drift and many people end up falling into temptation or sin or falling away and they don't finish well. And so Jesus is saying, look, you need to count the cost. You need to finish that which you've started and finish well, finish well the race. I mean, don't we all want to be like the Apostle Paul? I mean, I do, which he said at the end of his life, you know, I fought the good fight. I've run the good race. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, but not only for me, but for all who love uh, his appearing. And so, so that's what we're aiming to do here. And I think as we look at Matthew chapter 10, it really is like a good coach. Jesus is telling his disciples, this is how you win the race. This is how you finish well. And so... Matthew 10, 22 sort of sums it up in the sense that Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. So, you know, we're told in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. At the end of the race, guess who the finish line is? It's, it's not a finish line as much as it is a person. It's Jesus, and he will be there at the end to, to deliver us from whatever it is that this life might throw at us. And let's just face it, we've been going through difficult times right now. This has probably been the most tumultuous, stressful season that I've been through. Uh, I think that we as a nation have been through. Nobody would have ever anticipated this three months ago. Things have changed drastically throughout the world. And yet, I have more peace and assurance, and love, and hope that I ever have, because I see that God is working all things together for good, that love, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, so anyway, so, but we do need to understand that it requires patience, it requires wisdom, it requires perseverance on our part to make it to the end. So we're going to continue today in verse 34 of chapter 10. Now, Jesus continuing to give instructions to his disciples here. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So, Here's the thing, Jesus, I, I kind of like to know really what the background was for this statement that Jesus made. I mean, it would seem that people were, were misunderstanding his purpose, okay? They began to see that he's the Christ. They began to believe that. They didn't like being under Roman subjection. They hated it. And, and so they saw in Jesus, the deliverer, the one who was going to come and bring peace on earth, bring a political peace, and uh, bring, you know, be the son of David that was going to cause them to conquer their enemies. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, look, you don't understand why I am here, okay? Number one, I did say, blessed are the peacemakers. 
You know, he did say that in the Sermon on the Mount, for, for they shall be called the sons of God. But, you know, there may have been some that were misunderstanding that, to think that, oh, okay, well, he's, gonna, he's just weak, you know, he's, he's going to settle for peace at any price kind of a thing, you know. And, and so Jesus wanted to correct that as well. It's like, no, you have to understand, I have not come to bring peace, not political peace, not world peace. I have come to bring a, a, a peace with God. Uh, but I have not come to bring that kind of peace between people like you think. In fact, just the opposite. What's going to happen is those who follow me, that's going to bring a sword into situations. I'm going to be, be the one who brings division between even the closest human ties. Family ties. What could be closer than the relationship between uh, a son and father, or a daughter and mother, or a daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. Well, that's questionable, that one. But, but uh, if you're fortunate, like my, my wife is very fortunate to have an excellent relationship with our daughter-in-law. You know, she, we, she's like a daughter to us. We call her a daughter-in-law, not a daughter-in-law, okay? But not everybody has that sort of relationship. So, But the point was, is that Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to bring a sword in these relationships because what's going to happen is Jesus' Jesus's claims were so radical. I mean, he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Christ. You know, and so, so he said, if you're not for me, you're against me. You know, he made radical claims. And, and, and so that would, be, that would present a problem. And the other thing is he made, he, he said that, you know, if you, if you follow me, you must be willing to die for me. That's basically what he said. You know, you can't, it's not just like, you know, uh, you go to some class and there's a teacher and they, they, don't, they don't say to you, you know, if you're going to be in my class, you've got to be willing to die for me. I mean, who says that? Nobody says that. Jesus said that. And so it was going to be very evident that he was going to cause people to either be fully on, fully in, fully committed to him, or if they weren't, that was going to be what would bring the sword and divide people's relationships. And of course, we see that very often. I like to think of Jesus as being sort of the continental divide, okay? If you've ever been to the continental divide, you know, we actually went on a camping trip up uh, to Yellowstone and that whole area and going out to Canada. And you actually come up to the continental divide there which is an amazing thing. You know, you think about one raindrop on this side is going to go to the Pacific. One raindrop on this side is going to go to the Atlantic. You know, the continental divide. Well, Jesus is that. He's the one that's going to bring a sword. So you decide, am I for him or am I against him? And there's no, we say there's no neutrality or there's no Switzerland. Uh, as Switzerland tried to be, you know, neutral in World War II. There's no Switzerland when it comes to Jesus Christ. You're either for him or you're against him. And that creates this division. And so you see whether, whether it was Jews that were putting their faith in Christ, you know, that would bring a division in the family, or Muslims, or Mormons, or, or you know, just so many times. Even Catholics, when, if, if a person says, I'm a born-again Christian, and, and, a, and a family is so attached to the Catholic Church, but they're not attached to Jesus Christ, that can bring division even in that situation. And, and then, of course, there's with the, just the unbelievers, you know, in the world. Say you were raised in a home that 
had nothing to do with religion, had nothing to do with Christ. And you say, I'm a born again Christian now. God has transformed my life. You know, and people are not happy about that. They think you're a Jesus freak. They're worried that you're going to like somehow judge them or whatever. It's, and so again, there is a dividing sword that occurs in those kinds of relationships. And if you're not ready to say, I don't care, you know, I mean, I do care, but if, if it comes down to choosing Jesus over choosing these other relationships or family relationships, then I choose you, Jesus. My grandfather was a, a tremendous influence in my life, but his favorite song, his favorite hymn that he loved to sing was, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I love that, that verse that says, though none go with me, still I will follow. Do you have that kind of commitment to Christ? Do you have that kind of commitment that no matter, even though all might forsake you, would you still follow Jesus? Does he mean that much to you? Do you know him that well that you would say, yes, Lord, no matter what, I'll follow you. That's the kind of disciples Jesus was seeking to make. That's the kind of disciples he's looking for today. Verse 37, now he who loves me or loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It sort of follows, doesn't it? What he just said. If there's going to be a dividing sword, then you have to decide who do I love more? Who do I love the most? Who is that supreme love in my life? And we're all going to be challenged in that. You know, Abraham was. You know, he loved God. God loved him. God, you know, took a while answering his prayer to have a child, but God finally did, gave him Isaac. And, uh, you know, he loved Isaac. That was his son, his son whom he loved. And one day God says, okay, Abraham, this is what you need to do. You need to take your son, Isaac, your son you love, and you need to present him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I'm going to show you, Mount Moriah. And he was like, he didn't even, he didn't even just question it. He just said, okay. Got up early the next morning and off they went. And, and, so, and so, you know, he, that's tough. Yes, it is. It had to have been extremely heartbreaking to Abraham. And yet the Bible says that he believed God had a problem because God had said that it was going to be through Isaac that that his uh, seed would be reckoned. In other words, that he would bless the world through Isaac. And so he thought, okay, you got a problem, God. If you're going to have me sacrifice my son, then you're going to have to raise him from the dead. And so he went, and he was ready to do it, but God said, no, you don't need to do that. Abraham, I see that you love me. You didn't even withhold your son from me. That's how much you love, love me. And, and, and God was using that as a picture to show that there on the same mountain, though God spared Abraham's son, he would not spare his own son, but he offered his own son for you and me to forgive us of our sins right on that same Mount Moriah. But the point of it is, is that though God's probably not going to ever tell you to go sacrifice your child, and that could be a whole legal mess, by the way, I don't recommend that. But what he will tell you to do is he will tell you to put upon the altar that thing that is very dear to you that is perhaps pulling your attention away from Jesus Christ. He will make you choose who you're going to follow and do you love him most. And that's why Jesus said, look, if you love your father or your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Or your son or your daughter, if you love your children. Now, it's nothing greater than having children. Nothing 
greater than the, the parent's love for a child, a mother's love for a child, a father's love for a son, whatever. A daughter, too. You know, fathers love daughters, too. Okay. I, you know, they do. I'm, I'm still praying for a granddaughter. We got four grandsons. So I'm praying that my, some, one of my kids or in-laws, somebody gets with it. Anyway, that's another problem. It's not a problem. I'm happy with four grandsons. Although I would like to spoil a little granddaughter, too. But anyway. The point is, is that we have this natural love for our kids, our grandkids. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. That's a love that God put in our hearts. But again, we have to put the Lord first. And we can't put even family relationships above Jesus. If we do, we're not worthy of him, Jesus said. Verse 38, And who, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Okay? Now, this is a really popular uh, thing, right? Everybody, everybody agrees with this, right, uh, in, in the world today. That, that if, you're going to, if you're going to walk with the Lord, you need to be prepared to die. Okay? That goes over real well, doesn't it? What does the world tell us today, by the way? That's not the message that we get from the world. What do we get from the world today? You know, you need to love yourself. That's what the world's preaching at us. And this, this message of taking up your cross to follow Jesus, it flies in the face of everything that is being preached from every media outlet in the world today. Because it says just, you know, buy it. You need it. Go, just do it. Look out for number one. Seize the moment. Promote yourself. Assert yourself. You deserve it. You're worth it. And what does Jesus say? You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. You must be prepared to die. Just like I died for you. See? Boy, that's never going to be a popular message. And that's why I think that discipleship, the genuine biblical discipleship that Jesus talks about in the scripture is never going to be popular with the masses. It won't because we love ourselves too much. So Jesus said, you know, if, you're, if you do not take up your cross and follow after me, you're not worthy of me. So to put it bluntly, if you're not willing to die to self, to nail self to the cross to crucify one's sinful passions, as the Bible says in Galatians, then you're not worthy of Jesus Christ. That's intense. That's the qualifications of discipleship. So what does that practically mean for us anyway, to, to take up our cross and to follow after Christ? Does that mean that we build a little wooden cross and, and we, we, you know, we put it on our shoulder and we, we carry this across the United States. I know that people have done this. They have actually, you know, built a wooden cross. You carry it around the United States. Um, one guy actually put wheels on the bottom of his cross. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. Um, you know, I don't know. They haven't come up with any sort of power, you know, like a power mower type thing. Uh, but maybe that's not what he's talking about, okay? So let's take a look at what he is talking about. Now, what did the cross mean for Jesus anyway? The cross represented to Christ his absolute submission to the will of the Father. 
It was that which God the Father told Jesus, this is why you're coming into the world. You're going to live you know, a righteous life. And then you're going to offer your innocent body as a, as a faultless lamb upon a cross. And that's how you're going to redeem humanity. That's how you are going to save the world. And Jesus said, okay, I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. I mean, that's the way it went. And so, so for Jesus, the taking up of the cross meant that total submission and obedience to the will of the Father. He was willing to submit himself to become the servant of the Father, even to death on a cross. So for us, what does that mean? Well, very likely you probably won't be required to die on a cross, literally, okay? That's probably not going to happen. You probably won't even have to die a martyr's death for your faith, as 10 out of the 12 apostles did. You probably won't have to, although it could happen. It has happened in the past. It's possible. What that really is practically going to mean for each of us, however, is that you're going to have, to, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to love him and put him first, then you're going to have to submit to the will of God in your life. You're going to have to take up your cross in that sense. And, you know, even when you don't feel like it, even when it's not convenient, you're going to say, God, I'm here to serve you. And if this is what you've called me to do, then by your grace, and I need a lot of grace, and I need a lot of power and help from your Holy Spirit, but by your grace, I'm going to do it. And that's, that's what it means. That's what it means for each of us. And so therefore, your cross is going to be different from my cross. You know, What you're called to, to, to do to be obedient to God is going to be different than what I'm called to do. And we have to be okay with that. We're not to judge one another in that. It's a, it's a very personal thing between us and the Lord, what it is, what is our cross that he's called us to bear. But here's the point. If you are unwilling to take up your cross, if you are unwilling to crucify your sinful passions and obey Christ's commandments, then you are unworthy of Christ. That's what he's saying. You say, that's heavy, Pastor. Yes, it is. I agree with that. I don't feel too bad for you, though, because you're only going to have to deal with this for about 40 minutes. I've had to deal with this message all week. So you're not going to get a pity party from me, okay? But that's what he's saying, okay? Verse 39, now he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I think probably the most natural thing in the world is for us to seek our own life. We, we seek what we think is going to be best for us. In fact, it even says in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, okay? So, yeah, that's probably very natural. We do pursue our own happiness. We, we seek our life, our liberty, our happiness, our prosperity, our comfort, our security, and harmonious relationships. Everybody would like that. I certainly would. Um, and, and those are things that we naturally pursue, okay? Let's be honest about that. Um, it consumes a great deal 
of our time, our talent, and our treasure pursuing these things, okay? But the only problem with all of those things is that they are earth-centered, okay? They begin and they end in this life. And therefore, if that is the sum total of your pursuit, if you're just pursuing these things, your own personal happiness in this life, guess what? You're going to die and all of it will die with you. You cannot take any of it with you. That's the reality. So when Jesus says, if you seek your life in this life, you're going to lose it. Absolutely. If that's the sum total of your life, you die, it's gone. That's the end of it. Okay? Of course, long before that, you start losing things. Like, I'm losing hair right now. Okay? I'm, I've, uh, it's, that's the reality. You, you start losing your health. <laughs> you lose your kids. Uh, you, there's a lot of things you lose, okay? But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's just talking about where do you put all of your stock in this life? Ultimately, if you're just seeking your own life, you're going to lose that uh, eventually. Now, on the other hand, if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, if you're willing to set your, aside your own pursuits and pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then guess what? You will find true life both now and for eternity. It's an amazing paradox. If you seek your own life, if you seek your own happiness, most of those people are very miserable. The people that are really happy are the people that have learned to give themselves to God and to others, to give themselves away. And guess what? God fills you with his love, his joy, his peace, his abundant life in this life. And then you have the reward of eternal life, okay? Now, if this were Let's Make a Deal, if any of you even remember what Let's Make a Deal is, this would be a no-brainer, okay? The way I look at it, look, you seek the kingdom and his righteousness, you give your life to Christ, and you love God, you love people, you put him first, guess what? He's going to reward your life with much joy and peace and and he'll take care of your needs, and then he'll give you eternal life. A great deal for us. One of my favorite quotes is by Jim Elliott, the missionary who reached out to the Waorani people of Ecuador and was martyred in 1956. And he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You cannot keep your own life. So it's not foolish to give it to gain that which you'll never lose, which is eternal life. So um, I, I love the fact that if we put the Lord first, then what he will give to us is what the Bible calls joy unspeakable or indescribable joy. And, uh, and then you know, as I said, just everlasting life. Verse 40, well, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man receives a righteous man's reward, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. 
So here's an, an amazing thing that happens. When we give our lives to Christ, the Bible tells us that he comes and dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. So, you know, you're never alone. You have the Lord living in you, and, and the Holy Spirit will never leave you or forsake you. Okay, the other thing that happens is, is now you belong to the Lord. But now you are also his representative in this world. And Christ identifies with you. He identifies with his church. And this is why he could say, look, if, you know, he's talking to his disciples, he's sending them out, and he's saying, look, if somebody receives you as one of my disciples, guess what? They're receiving me because I'm in you. And that's the kind of identification that I have with my church. On the other hand, you know, if they reject you, guess what? They're rejecting me, okay? Uh, that's, that's kind of a heavy-duty responsibility. I don't know about you, but the whole concept of, of I am here and I am a representative of Jesus Christ and people are watching me and they are judging Jesus by what they see in me, that is a heavy responsibility. And I cannot say that I have always lived what, that one out real well, okay? Uh, but look at Moses, okay? Neither did Moses. You recall the time when Moses, you know, he just had it up to here with the murmuring and complaining and the belly aching and the whining of all of these Israelites for 40 stinking years in the wilderness? I mean, at one point he said, God, if this is the way you're going to deal with me, just take me now, okay? I didn't bring these kids into the world, you know, 1.5 million or 2 million, whatever, however many there were. I didn't bring them into the world, you know? And finally... You know, he'd had it, and they were complaining, and, and Jesus or God said, okay, go speak to the rock and the water, because they didn't have any water. Go speak to the rock, and the water will come gushing out. And he said, you rebels, must I take this staff and strike this rock? You know, you know, and so the water came out, but, you know, God says to Moses, Moses, you misrepresented me out there, dude. And because of that, you are not going into the promised land. But, 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 you know, it's like, no, you know, you misrepresent me. So, so that's a heavy duty responsibility to realize that when you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he said, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. People are judging Christ by what they see in us. And Christ has given us the responsibility to be his ambassadors, his representatives, as though we are ambassadors in a foreign country representing him. So, so if they uh, reject us, they're rejecting him. In addition, God shares in this that the reward that he will give to his servants who support them. So, as Jesus said, look, if you receive a righteous man, you're receiving their reward. In other words, what God does is he says, okay, the, the reward that I would give to a prophet, the reward that I would give to a righteous man, to a missionary, to whatever, if you support that person, you know, then you're going to share in their same reward. If you love on them, if you support their physical needs, whatever, you're going to get the same reward. That's what Jesus said. 
So, so that's the kind of cool thing. Now, in all of that, I think what this means is that we who would follow Jesus, we need to be prepared for, for all of it. We need to be prepared for the fact that there are going to be those people that will bless us. And you know, we need to be able to receive that. I, I think you look at Jesus, everything that he had in this life, he was, it was borrowed, okay? You know, he received a lot of help from a lot of people, and he wasn't too proud to receive it. I see some Christians are just like so proud they won't receive help. Listen, God has ordained that you receive help. God has ordained that you give help, okay? All of us need to understand those two lessons. We are called to give. We are called to receive. We are interdependent upon people, and we are interdependent upon God. Clearly, we're very dependent on God. And, and, and that's the way God has designed it. But God says, look, if anybody even gives you a cup of cold water, or if you give a disciple of mine a cup of cold water, then you will receive a reward in heaven. And so that's the thing. But on the other hand, if they reject you, you know, Jesus already talked about it. They're going to hate you. They're going to treat you like they treated me. If they reject you, understand they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're not persecuting you. They're per persecuting me. And do you remember when Saul did that? Saul of Tarsus, he was arresting Christians. He went to Damascus to imprison them. He stood by while they killed Stephen the martyr. And, and when Jesus appeared to Saul, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the way Jesus identifies with his church. So he ends it there. These instructions to his disciples. It's a great study, I think, here in chapter 10 on how we go the distance with Christ. You got to understand these things that this is what God has called us to if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ so that when the going gets rough, you don't quit. You don't drift away. You don't fall into temptation. You don't just say, that's it. I've had it. I'm done. Jesus put these things out here so that we would have patience even when the times are difficult. Times such as we are going through right now. I think these are some of the most difficult times that I've personally seen as a pastor. I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years. I don't think I've ever, I've never seen anything like this before, okay? And even today, you know, we have our brothers and in, in, uh, past fellow pastors in California that are meeting uh, against the governor's uh, edict. Uh, Supreme Court he won't even support them right now. So many of them might be arrested today. Who knows? These are tough times we're dealing with. My heart, my prayers go out to them. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that we're able to meet here uh, legally here in Boise, Idaho, but that could all change. Things are crazy right now. And then, you know, just when you, as I was talking to Andy here before the service, just when you think things are starting to come to some kind of normalcy, then we have this thing with, with uh, George Floyd and the whole blow up of that in various cities of total mayhem. Now, how I get that this, you know, uh, this is an unjust kind of a thing, unjust kind of a thing, but then suddenly this becomes the, the justification for all kinds of rioting and looting and breaking down stores, and, and you think, what is going on? People have gone mad. 
And I think in many ways they have. But it just shows us what kind of, of times that we are living in. And so what is it that God wants us to do? Number one, are we at the end? Is this it? You know, is Jesus coming tomorrow? I, I hope he comes today, honestly. Praise the Lord. Come on. Maranatha. Uh, are we at the end? You know, it's very possible. But to answer that question, let's just look at what Jesus said. Let's fast forward a bit here. You're going to get a sneak preview of, uh, of Matthew 24. Let's go to Matthew 24. Because Jesus was asked by his disciples, you know, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Okay, now we've had... Then he said, verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Okay, we've had that, World War I, World War II, kingdoms coming against kingdoms. We've seen that. There will be famines, pestilences. The other word biblically for that is plague. Uh, and earthquakes in various places. Now, all these are the beginnings of sorrows, the beginnings of birth pangs. This is how you're going to know that the delivery is coming soon, okay? Because the birth pangs start and they become more intense and more frequent as you get closer. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. See, that could still happen, folks. As I said, I think there's a lot of, a lot of churches going through tribulation right now in many ways, just to me. And who knows where all of it will end. I, I'm, not, I'm not really anticipating I'm going to die here in Boise, Idaho, but it could happen. Who knows? I could be put in prison as possible. Jesus said there's going to be tribulation. You're going to have to go through these kinds of things. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. They will betray one another and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. I got to say... I, if we're here long enough to see it and Jesus doesn't come right away, I, I really anticipate that the next thing you're going to start seeing is an increase in false teaching and false prophets and all of that. I, I, would, I would pretty much bank on that based upon what Christ said here. Of course, the ultimate deceiver is coming. His name is the Antichrist, but I don't believe that we, the church, will be here to see that because of what it says in 2 Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit really is preventing him from being revealed to the world until we are taken out of this place. That's the way I look at it. But there are those false prophets, deceivers, people that come as Satan masquerades as an angel of light to deceive as many as he can, uh, and that's certainly happening. Uh, and then finally, and this is what I, what I wanted to key on. What, are we at the end? I really believe that we are at the end or very, very close to the end. And why? Because of what he says here in verse 12. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Folks, if, if you don't look and see what's happening right now as just pure lawlessness, you know, I was thinking about how... How does 
you know, basically raiding and looting and breaking down somebody's store that they own, how does that serve a justice against a black man that was killed? How does that serve justice? It's just mayhem. It's lawlessness. It's chaos. And yet you see that this is just the beneath the surface. And of course, as we've seen, you know, the people that are doing this are being sent in by activist groups from out of state to just stir the pot. But it shows you the kind of lawlessness and rebellion that's in the heart of man that's exploding right now. And, and I think the whole pandemic has just made it so that people are on edge and they're ready to explode. And Jesus said, because of that, because lawlessness will abound in the last day, guess what? The love of many will grow cold. And that's my fear in all of this. I got to be honest. I think that the love of many is waxing cold. Many in the church. Jesus is not their first love anymore. They've departed from that first love. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've drifted away. If you can look back and see a time when you were closer to Jesus than you are right now, more in love with him, more involved in his work and, and, and in his word and sharing your faith than you are now, then you better take your temperature, okay? Because it's very possible your love for him is chilled. And God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to be on fire. But here's the good news. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You see, I think that we are at this amazing sort of intersection of great lawlessness, the love of many growing cold, but at the same time that God is getting ready to do a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's testing you and he's testing me right now. He's testing the church. He's testing the world to see where we are at. And fence sitters are not going to be able to stay on the fence. You're either going to be for him or you're against him. And if you are for him, he's going to break open so many opportunities for you to share the gospel. And you better be prepared to do it because this is the last chance you're going to get. And once we go to heaven, guess what? There's no more opportunity to make disciples. There's no more opportunity to share your faith. That's it. And so I think that we are at a very, very exciting place in time. I'm, I'm, I, I'm praying that we as the church come together in love, in unity, that, that we don't get caught up and ensnared in all of the traps that the Satan would try to like to distract us by, but that we understand what it is that God has called us to and that we do it well. And, and if you don't know Jesus Christ, then my prayer for you is that today would be the day that you would realize he is the best deal for you. He is the good shepherd. The, Satan wants to come and steal and kill and destroy your life, but Jesus has come as the good shepherd to to give you eternal life. And all you have to do is reach out to him and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I trust that you died on the cross for me and that God rose you from the dead and I want to follow you and trust in you and, and, I, and go to where you have for me to go. And, and just know that's the greatest adventure you'll ever uh, embark upon. So that's my message. I'm going to stick with it. So let's go ahead and we're going to bow our heads and, and close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, that you're in control of all things. 
And Lord, you love your church. You love each person here that's heard this message today. There's not a single person beyond the scope of your love, but you don't want them to be deceived by Satan and by the lies of this world. And God, we, we're, we're all vulnerable to that. But Lord, thank you that you've given us your truth, that we can know the truth and that the truth can set us free. And I do pray, Lord, that if there's any today listening to this anywhere, Lord, that uh, first off, if they've grown cold in their walk with you, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them back, that you'd stoke the fire in their heart for you, Jesus, once again. And if they've never known you, Lord, I pray today that they would hear the voice of your spirit calling them to trust in you and open their hearts and invite you into their lives to receive you as Savior and as Lord and to know, Lord, that their names are written in heaven and that they be filled with the joy of the Spirit and the peace of God. We thank you, Father. We love you. God, give us opportunities this week, Lord, as there's a lot of people that are afraid or uncertain. Lord, we know the end game. We know how this is all going to end. We know that you're coming back for those who, who love you. And we pray, Father, that you give us opportunities to boldly share the good news of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.